Hey, this is Hear This Idea. In this episode, I spoke with Liv Barry. Liv has a decently impressive CV. She is a former poker champion turned science communicator with a background in astrophysics. Liv co-founded the nonprofit Raising for Effective Giving around the time she was the number one ranked female poker player in the world. And since retiring from poker, she now has a YouTube channel and an excellent new podcast called Win Win, which is linked in the show notes. It's hard to pin those down to one topic, but I think one through line is something like finding inspiration in the ideas of game theory for understanding big society level problems. We talked about the poker mentality, how to bet on your beliefs, the concept of Moloch, analogies between powerful AI systems and powerful corporations, and much more. Yeah, this was an unusually chatty and I think wide-ranging one, but uh, I hope in a good way. At least I really enjoyed it. Okay, here's Liv Brewery. All right, Liv, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, there's a lot to talk about. I kind of want to start by talking about poker. And here's one thing I was wondering. There seems to be some kind of pipeline from playing professional poker to then doing some kind of like often kind of weird, unorthodox, impact-focused work, like especially in EA, and also being quite good at it. So I think you're an example of this, maybe like Kate Hall is an example. How much of that do you think is down to selection, i.e. the same kind of people who want to do these jobs happen to be into poker? And how much do you think poker actually helps you learn the right lessons to do these jobs well? Mm. Um. I'm sure it's a bit of bit of both. Um, certainly, you know the the type of personality that tends to be attracted to poker is you know people who are they love abstract concepts. Um, they like mathematical concepts, um, and also just especially you know for people who choose to play poker full time at a young age. I think you tend to be a little bit more um, against the grain in many ways. So there's probably some selection effect going on there. Um, but I think a little bit of it is it's, it, you know, some of us learned about effect, like effective altruism or just like, you know, like um, philanthropy and specifically sort of like quantified philanthropy, that kind of stuff uh, around 2014. And then that created a sort of ripple through poker. So um that's probably more the sort of the, the, the this, where the cause and effect is manifesting. Um, you know, like we met the, a group of sort of Swiss philosophers uh, who sort of gave all the arguments to me and Igor and um, a couple of other poker players. Um, uh, this guy, uh, Stefan Huber in particular, he was already playing poker to donate a bunch of his money. It, basically, he was playing poker to make money, which he wanted to donate to really effective charities. Um, so that's kind of where the spark of interest came from. And then, yeah, from there it rippled. And then like Kate became interested in it. I think sort of, I think somewhat by herself. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to know exactly how the pipeline works, but um, definitely poker. So it's only poker helps in terms yeah. of teaching you to think, you know, you, you have to navigate uncertainty. You have to think probabilistically. You have to understand when your intuitions are useful versus when your intuitions are actually very unhelpful. Um, you know, biases, all of that kind of stuff, rationality, that's absolutely ingrained in the game of poker. 
Um, so it, it maps very nicely onto sort of the types of problems that now we're all focused on. Yeah, good. Because I was going to mention that it seems to me like chess, for instance, is less disproportionately represented yeah. in this kind of world of trying to have a ton of impact. And like chess is this game of perfect knowledge and certainty and the world is like not. Yeah, like chess is a game of perfect information, uh, both, you know, symmetry, both people can see the same thing. Um, there's no real hidden information. Uh, there's also no luck. There's no variance. Yeah. Best player basically wins every single time. Whereas in poker, um, there's so much variance, especially in the short term, that you, it, it, one of the skills you have to develop is learning to recognize whether your results are a result of yourself or a result of luck. Um, so this like searching for a signal in, in noisy data is again a key part of a lot of um, the philanthropy work that we all do. Um, so, I mean, it, it's for that reason that I think poker is just by far the superior game compared to almost any game I can think of for like honing just general sort of business or decision-making skills um, in life because it's, it's just a closer analog to life than a game like chess. Yeah, here's a random thing. So basically anyone's smartphone is going to be able to beat anyone in the world at chess, mm -hmm. like easily. But this hasn't killed chess. In fact, people kind of enjoy watching computers play chess. It's kind of interesting. Is that the case with poker? So both is AI now better than humans? Mm -hmm. And also, is that like good and interesting? Yeah, it's, it's TBD. Um, you know, certainly it's made it harder to become a professional. Like I wouldn't recommend to anyone to become a professional poker player now. Certainly not if you want to try and play online because I think you know online poker is done certainly at high stakes because you've now got actual real time solvers uh, or at least, you know, back in 2015, 16, when I was still sort of playing full time, um, you could find out the game theory, optimal solutions to different situations, but it would take like eight hours to run a sim for it. But now right, you can get right. basically as good an answer in, you know, less than a minute. I think I've, latest I heard is like 10 seconds or something so that you can literally use it in real time. So, certainly makes it less interesting to me to try and, you know, to go out there and play against someone online who could be using one of these things. It's like, great, I'm playing against a, a near perfect machine. Um, where's the fun in that? In terms of whether it makes the game less interesting for spectators, um, I don't know, like chess, I don't know if it's, you know, it's not as popular as it was in like the Bobby Fischer days, but, you know, I think that had kind of the added benefit of the whole Cold War stuff to, you know, make people interested. Um, you know, chess has gone through a resurgence and certainly like the world championships, you know, in 2018, I went along to the one which Magnus Carlsen played against um, Fabiano Caruana. And I mean, it was such a buzzing energy there. People loved it. And they have to sit and play in a glass box. So they, they're yeah, completely yeah, isolated. Yeah. They can't right. hear anyone because anyone in the audience can like ruin the game, right? They've, we've, we've got the like basically perfect solutions in our hands We're just using... And, and the commentators somehow make like a two-hour game of moves that I don't understand. Like oh, actually sure. interesting. Like, yeah. Is he gonna no, play I mean, H4? It's oh all my God. over my head. I'm like, yeah. I'm 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 falling off the wagon. I'm back completely addicted to chess again right now. I'm I'm a terrible at it. Like I'm 13. Okay, nice. Because yeah. I, I I just I don't want to actually study. I just want to yeah, learn just by spam playing. Yeah. Um, but it was still exciting, you know, because in many ways, you know, okay, before there was like a mystery of like, oh, what were they going to do? And no one understands why they're doing it. They just think, oh, you know, the, the, all that knowledge is locked up in the players' heads and players' heads alone. 
But now you can sit and be like, well, I know what they need to do. Oh, lol, he didn't do it. Yeah, oh, right. Wow, he found the move. You know, so it's it's a different it, it's a different way of spectating the game, and it's but it's not made it less fun. I from what I can tell, but in poker, it's, I haven't seen anyone doing that yet. Like I haven't seen anyone sitting with a solver and watching a live stream and being like, well, this is the correct play. Let's see if he makes it. Uh, I, that said, that now that we have these real-time ones, maybe that is going to start happening. And I mean, it would certainly make it, make it interesting for someone like me who doesn't really watch the game anymore to now come back and be like, okay, let's see what these, you know, the, the, the latest whiz kids are up to. Yeah. And when you like run these little solvers that spit out the game theory optimal answer, is the answer ever just really surprising? Mm, yeah, some of, the, some of the things are really counterintuitive. Um, I mean, certainly like there was this... Uh, well, the first sort of superhuman level one that was built um, in, you know, there was actually like a bot that could play play itself essentially, um, and it played against humans. It was called Libratus, and some of the solutions it came came across and would implement were really strange. Things like betting a tenth pot on the turn, and then, but then check raising like seven x pots. Uh, like these like bizarre sizings that no human would do, but actually it knows are you know the most unexploitable sizings essentially because that's what game theory optimal mean, means it's it's like you can't be exploited by your opponent if you're playing game theory optimal it doesn't mean it's always the most profitable um in terms of if your opponent's doing something dumb you might not want to stay playing game theory optimal you might want to deviate from it and exploit them but in terms of yourself you cannot be exploited by your opponent and those were the those were the things it was doing so it was really and you could see the humans being like what on earth just happened like huh this makes no sense it's just bet it's just led 6x pot into me you know most most games you, you people don't ever bet more than 2x pot usually it's under one you know if, if there's a thousand in the pot someone will bet like 600 or 400 or 200 or maybe 900 maybe a thousand but never six thousand and that must right, be so right, confusing right. to them and like it, and and then they're going to start making huge mistakes which will be it'll be exploiting even more yeah like, this is very abstract question which is when AI gets good at like a very wide range of things, including like negotiating with people on behalf of other people, how weird will the strategies it comes up with be? And like maybe one weak bit of evidence is to look at these these games, mm. which are kind of like these potted examples and just see how alien the like optimal moves are according to these computers compared to human moves. Yeah, um, that's a very good point. Yeah. I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to try and, you know, negotiate in a game of, I, I mean, I don't even know what you'd be negotiating against an AI in. I mean, I guess like some kind of live auction, someone's using an, an optimal AI yeah. might be doing some really strange things. Yeah, probably. Um, that's, yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah. So poker involves bets. And at least my understanding is that uh, you've been known to make bets off the poker table as well. Why is this like, generally good thing to do given that most people aren't in the habit of constantly making bets about real world outcomes um i mean i think it's good to make bets on stuff because it's basically like it's a tax on bullshit <laughs> um <laughs> we like to call it you know someone's like oh i you know i i oh you're no good at that i could i could i could get that ball in yeah right, right. in that cup over there no problem and it's like okay how much do you want to bet and immediately you notice someone will you know like oh that you know that that superconductor. Yeah, no, it's definitely real. It's definitely real. Okay, well, let's let's bet on whether that superconductor is actually you know this this paper that's come out. And as soon as you actually ask people to put money on the line, all of a sudden they you know well, someone with good epistemics will hopefully 
have already thought about this, but you know, you, it's interesting how people change their tune. So it's it's a good way of holding yourself um, accountable, essentially, to your own nonsense. Yeah. And it makes you like actually think through a problem and same, you know, you can hold others to it. Um, and also it just like, you can use it as a way to incentivize you to do something that otherwise you might not want to do, right? Like uh, there's a lot of, um, there's a big trend in the poker community right now to do sort of like some kind of health bets, you know, whether it's like getting, being able to run a mile in a certain time or a weight loss or something like that. Um, and, you know, those can be really good ways of incentivizing people to get, to achieve a goal that they, they, they want to do. So wait, how does that concretely work? So like, I'm trying to get a new PB on my squat or whatever. Right. And then there's going to be some thing which pays out if I do and doesn't if I don't and other people can buy it or... Yeah. So, I mean, on? you want to think about like, what are your odds of, you know, what, what is the goal you want to achieve? And then what is the likelihood that you achieve it? Um, ideally, you want to bet against someone who isn't trying to just like shark you. Um, I mean, sometimes you have to like give them a little bit of juice, you know. You said, said something about a shark and something about juice. Oh, um, <laughs> so a shark, like a sharky is basically just like a good bet, you know, like okay. a, a smart better, a shark yeah. better sometimes as it's called. Um, you know, the sh it comes from like in poker, you like call a good player a shark and then a bad player a fish. And then a bad rich player you call a whale. Um, and everyone's looking for whale fall. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, so yeah, depending on, you know, assuming you're betting at someone who is truly looking for the fair odds then you know you try and figure out what those are so like a good example recently was igor um and his friend bill were talking about you know igor was like oh i used to run a bit and bill's like well we, we, you know do you still run and igor's like no i don't run anymore but i mean i still have that residual fitness and bill's like i i call no you don't you haven't <laughs> when was the last time you yeah. actually trained or did any running he's like i don't know two years three years he's like no way you can run a seven minute mile if we did it like tomorrow and he goes like, oh, I think I can. So anyway, there was a bit of back and forth. And then eventually they decided like they. So you agree on odds, presumably. Well, so they, they decided to bet one to one. Um, okay, yeah. So then it was a question of like, what is the line? You know, what's their indifference point, both of them? Um, and they settled on seven minutes. And so then they went and did it the next day. And it was really hot. It was like 30 degrees C, beating sun. We went to a, like a, you know, a, a, a public uh, 400 meter track. And uh, anyway, he made it. But Let's I mean, go. It, like, but he did not time himself. He didn't pace himself well. The first 400 meters, he went way too fast. So he was actually, he was really in the shit by the end of it, but he did make it. But it was, you know, and our, our, our friend Bill is like one of his favorite things. He's, a, he's an example of like a, just a really, he's, a, he's someone who bets for the right reasons. He truly wants yeah. to incentivize his friends to get in better shape. Um, and there've been some really funny ones. Like one guy had to do lunges, like every step he took for 24 hours had to be a full lunge where his knee touched the floor. And this was at this poker tournament. So you have to like travel a lot of distance just to go from your room to the bathroom and so on. Um, so that was a very funny scene, seeing him like, um, you know, like not going to the bathroom because he like having to hold it for way longer because he just couldn't, his legs were so fried. He couldn't. Oh my God. That. Yeah. That's a just really cool way of like holding yourself accountable, incentivizing yourself to do things that maybe you don't, you wouldn't do otherwise. Um, and just make it, I think they just make life a bit more fun. They don't have to be even for money. Um, you know, like Igor and I, you know, at this point our resources are pretty shared, so we don't bother doing stuff for money. We do like for time though, like that's a mm. nice spare resource we both care about. Um, so like PA time, I don't want to do, I don't want to compile my receipts for my tax return. You right. Can do it one of us has got to do this. And like, yeah, one, I, I need to do it. Like you can do it for me. I know you're smart. So like we'll bet, we'll bet time against each other and, you know, 15 minute increments or something like that. Nice. I like that. Also, things get very interesting when 
So if, if we're trying to settle on odds, mm. things are interesting when I expect my guess to influence your actual chance. You know what I mean? So like, if my implied odds suggest that I think you're very likely to do it, maybe that really gets you motivated and makes you even more likely, right? right? Or vice versa. And it raises the question of how or whether you can find an implied probability that isn't kind of slippery, doesn't change right, as soon as I tell you it. Right, isn't in some way. Yeah. Isn't actually... And the answer is that you totally can. You just need to be like, a, it needs to be a fixed point such that like, if I tell you it, then doesn't doesn't change. And you mm. can always find the fixed point, or at least normally you can. Do you have an example? All right, so if you imagine like a graph and on the Y is your like actual chance of releasing your next podcast episode within a week. Mm-hmm. Let's say that's the thing. And then on the X is the like probability that I tell you and that we like make a bet on, right? right. And um, your actual chance is going to be a function of the probability that I tell you. Yes. So if you're just like, if, if you don't care what I say, there's just going to be like a straight line. But maybe it's going to be some wiggly thing, mm-hmm. right? And now if you imagine the like Y equals X line, at some point, this has to intersect with your right. actual probability line. Yes. And maybe it can intersect more than once. And where it intersects is a fixed point where my stated probability is equal to your actual probability. Right. And so okay. I'm looking for those, those fixed points. That's a very analytical way of doing it. <laughs> that, that was an extremely nerdy discussion. In normal bet, you know, I'm sure it happens in like professional sports betting and that kind of stuff, but it certainly doesn't happen in the poker community when someone is deciding okay. whether or not they can like swim across to that island five miles offshore without dying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to hear. Um, <laughs> not even you at that nerdy. Um, what are some bad bets to make or like other circumstances where I just might be like harmful mm. unwise to bet on something well one you know i think bets where you're incentivizing to someone to do something that they didn't you know wouldn't want to do so i think that you know there was like these like really bad taste things of like it was horrible what was it called like bum fights or something where they, people would like bet homeless people to fight each other like just absolutely horrific exploitative things taking advantage of disadvantaged people who need money and like incentivizing them to do a thing that is just clearly bad for them. Um, that, that, those are bad. Um, what else? <sighs> Betting on whether a couple will last. I remember just like, uh, someone who's not really a friend an acquaintance bet against whether I would, you know, when Igor and I first got together, whether we would last longer than a year. Um, and it was just like, why would you do that? Like, okay, I get it. You don't think we're a good match. I mean, I'm, we've proven him very wrong. You know, nine, yeah, right. nine years ago. Maybe that was motivating. <laughs> uh, maybe, yeah. But it, it, it just like things like that make give me a little bit of an icky taste um, in my mouth. But y- yeah, like, I mean, some of them are just fun. Like, they, <laughs> there was a guy who was bet to whether that he, he somehow said, like, oh, I could live in the bathroom of a Bellagio hotel room for a month and not leave. And, and, and then like someone bet him, okay, yes, yes, you can do it. So that was an example of incentivizing him to do something that wasn't really good for him. But at the same time, he came up with it. Everyone found it funny. He was okay, I guess, at the end of it. So I don't know, like that, that's all right. But yeah, just anything where you're incentivizing someone to do something, um, particularly in, in like an exploitative way um, that they probably wouldn't otherwise do or like the better 
angels of their nature would realize is is not a thing that you know it's not it's not a bet that would be good if the whole world copied um those those are probably examples yeah i find that really interesting and like even in general when you're thinking about are there like free exchanges of money for doing a thing which shouldn't be possible to make you know you can imagine a company paying someone to like tattoo their logo on, on their face or something right and you could argue well you know it's like a consensual exchange and both parties think they're coming off better Mm. But there's just something kind of undignified, and it's kind of hard to spell out exactly what it's really. Going yeah, it's really weird, interesting. I like I totally think most agree. people have an intuition that there's something wrong about that, but it's if you sort of break it down, there's no clear to me step. Yeah, like with that tattoo example, it's like okay, if they're both, let's say they're both of sound mind, they're both their brains are fully formed, they're over both over the age, you know, or oh, sorry, the the person's over the age of twenty five, um, they've it's for a, a lot you know an amount of money that is they're going to walk away with a smile on their face essentially something like that then technically you know like I, I still lean more on the side of like giving people freedom of choice it's their body and so on like I'd much rather live in a society where someone has the choice to be able to do something like that than not that said I would also rather live in a society where someone doesn't need feel feel the need to do that in order to survive or get by um, totally yeah so yeah I, it's 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 something like that it's like if it's done in the spirit of fun you know because i mean this is like i guess right. it's like, it leads into the question of like you know surrogacy for money right paying someone to carry a child for someone else um you know for, for yourself or whatever and like that's a free exchange you know it's someone's everyone's an adult like there are like sort of checks and balances and so on like i personally think that's okay that said there's still like, I get why there's like an ick factor that people feel because it's, it's something about, I think like commodifying your body. Right. Um, but I, yeah, I, I really oscillate on it. It's, it's, it's not clear to me where the ethical line should be. Um, yeah, but, totally. but it, it, it does feel like there should be an ethical line, I guess is, is my point. Yeah. And like one way you could, you know, explain this feeling, which I share. <laughs> Is to be a paternalist basically and just say that like there are certain cases where people you know where it's possible to know better than the person making this choice right but you kind of don't really want to go there in order to explain why you know you think it's like not good that it's possible to for companies to like pay people to tattoo their logo on their faces or something so then like what else is it like what explains it, these intuitions kind of unclear mm. um dignity feels like a relevant word well, here. It's, it's the idea of like there's like yeah dignity some idea of like sacredness or something like that yeah like some things should be held sacred and not commodified um and i do i do believe that by the way like I, you know like the idea of having you know I, I, there was like that drone show like i love drone shows for art i think they're really cool like some beautiful sculpture you know in the sky it's like you're turning the sky into pixels i think that's really cool but then um like there was a candy crush ad made out of drones across the city and that like created a visceral reaction in me. I was like, oh, like this, this, this is not okay. And I think it's because it's like, it's a start of a slippery slope. Um, yeah, like a like race very... to the bottom. That feels like a real category exactly. like of the beginning, Like in isolation, if it's done for us for like, again, a singular art piece of like making a, a point of commodifying the sky to be like, oh, we shouldn't. Sure, that's fine. But if it's like truly like, no, this is just the next logical, you know, it's, it's a commons, right? That our, our night sky is the commons. And 
if we're going to start basically letting people use it as advertising billboards, that's now the beginning of a race to the bottom of like, like now that resource is going to just eventually get completely, you know, if, if, if some sort of regulation or some kind of limiting factor doesn't hit, then it's going to, we're going to just end up with more and more and more of that. So it's, it's those kind of things. Like it's like the sky is, is a commons that is like unite, unified humanity for milli- millennia. And we really want to start now commodifying it to the highest bidder. Yeah. I feel like this, this point is kind of, underrated. So we think about advertising in general, including advertising in the sky, for sure. Um, so it benefits the advertiser for people to see the ads, right? But does like some random billboards generally enhance the, you know, the vibe of the place it is? Like typically I'd say no, right? Right. So there's this kind of externality to ads often. Mm-hmm. So for instance, most films, especially like period films set in cities, like tend to be basically no adverts. Um, or if you think about like a contemporary film, like but how often do you see a bus advert or something or like a, you know, a billboard on a bus stop or whatever. And it's like, cause they're just slightly ugly, right? So maybe there's like an externalities reason for making it hard to advertise or taxing advertisement. I mean, I think it's, you know, words themselves are just not particularly aesthetically pleasant. Yeah. Generally writing, it's kind of harsh and so on. If you've got like particularly like a nature scene, you know, it's very rich and nuanced and granular and there's high complexity. And then like a word, you say, okay, it's some nice calligraphy, I guess it's like trying its best to be artistic, but generally just like pretty blocky and it's like low information density. I don't know. It's a lot. Yeah, like- I feel that. Yeah, like some advertisements though are like really beautiful. Well, that's the thing. And yeah. I was on like a kind of lawyer for you advert. I just don't want to see, but like- uh- Right. I'm with you, although a friend of mine made a very good point and she's like, no, I think we should have some pockets. Like she would rather live in a world where, for example, like a highly, you know, just dense advertising, kind of like a, you know, Blade Runner-esque cyberpunk style where it's just like billboards everywhere, like max density, you know, visual assault. She'd rather live in a world where there is at least one city like that. Yeah, right. And I was like, you know what? I, I agree with you. Like, that's a more interesting world where we've got that juxtaposition. If nothing else, to be like, okay, that's possible. Let's, let's you know, let's hand this patch of space over to like, go nuts. Yes, just full commodification, billboards everywhere. Like, no quiet, no peace. Like, something like Vegas or Miami. Like, those, those kind of cities, that's the vibe of them anyway. So like, okay, fine, go full, go full Blade Runner. Um, but let's like draw a firm fence around it and don't let that shit bleed into into everything else, into the suburbs, into you know, and beyond, into farmland, the commons in general. Certainly not national parks, etc. Like let's keep it f- strictly there. That's a more interesting world than not. Um, that said, I would rather live in a world where there's if the choice was let it bleed everywhere or have no advertisements at all, then I would rather probably live in the, the no advertisements. Yeah, I like the idea that just like let's have some diversity. Right. Some people truly just love that aesthetic. Like, okay, great. Like, it's I'd, again, I'd rather live in a you know, if we're talking sort of uh, a kind of culture, you know, the the culture series where it's just, yeah, right. Any, anything and everything that could exist does exist. Um, yeah, it's a more interesting universe. Like, have a fine. Let's just have a planet that is just completely. It's like it's like the Moloch, the Moloch commodification planet, and that's that's what you get there. <laughs> it's like, and it's optional. You can leave if you want. 
Although in reality, probably people can't. Yeah. And the Steinberg uses this phrase like the coral reef vision of the future, where there's just like everything for everyone. And as long as people always have the option to like go somewhere else, then right. more diversity is better than less. Yeah. Um, Although if yeah. it was truly like a like you know dystopian Blade Runner style planet or city, I think for it to like live up to its definition, people would not be able to leave because it is dystopian and they like they're like mm -hmm. uh, you right. know if you're, if you're viewing it as like an art piece, <laughs> you kind of want it to stay that way. Uh, yeah, which yeah, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, you're getting into like some ethical yeah problems. So earlier on, you mentioned like one reason we might not want certain kinds of voluntary exchanges to be easy is because you might expect um, some kind of race to the bottom dynamic where like each individual is making themselves better off but kind of collectively things become worse off for everyone mm -hmm. and I guess this kind of thing has a name right which is Moloch something you've talked about I'm kind of curious how you summarize this whole Moloch idea like what yeah, what's the definition of what's going on with Moloch? Yeah, um, so I mean, there's various definitions. Um, you know, it the first person to sort of put it into really like game theory terms uh, was Scott Alexander um, in his amazing blog, Meditations on Moloch. Um, and he basically described it as, Moloch is like the, the, the god of multipolar traps. Um, so, you know, these, these, these crappy Nash equilibria um, or race, pure race, you know, an Ash equilibrium is if it could sort of, it's just like gets stuck at a, a bad place or if it continues actually just racing down to, down to the bottom. Um, where basically like the incentive, the short-term incentives encourage each person to do, you know, an action X, which in aggregate creates a worse outcome uh, for the whole. Uh, so yeah, like a, cl a classic example is, is fish farmers like farming a lake. Um, so think of the lake as a commons and um, it would be best if everyone installs a more expensive filter, uh, around their fish farms to, to reduce pollution. Um, so that, you know, that, cause if everyone, cause if everyone just starts farming as much, uh, farming as many fish as they can without a filter, then it, it the, 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 lake gets more and more polluted, which actually then lowers the number of fish on net, which lowers everyone's yields, yields, um, in aggregate. Um, whereas if they all do the individually, slightly more costly thing of installing an expensive filter overall everyone will end up making more money but then there's the incentive for each individual person to quietly turn off their filter and save that money um and and like you know essentially get a competitive advantage over everyone else but then the next, yeah, person, right. and the next person and so the whole system ends up falling back down to that same crappy state um a nice like sort of visual analogy i like to give actually of that is like um, in a, in fact, you made a graphic for me of this, which I've yet to use still. We need to do it. Um, the, the stadium. Oh yeah. So like a, really? like a football stadium where like, let's say, you know, let's say everyone's at a concert and, you know, usually everyone starts off sitting down and it, you know, they, it's sort of on a slope, but then some people down the front decide they want to get a slightly better view. So they stand up and that forces the people behind them to stand up and the people behind them and behind them until then everyone is now stuck standing up and because it's so noisy there's no way for everyone to like sort of effectively communicate and all sit down together so mm -hmm. now everyone ends up standing up for the rest of the show and like having tired legs and so on and no one has now any more like a, everyone's in a no one has an advantage over anyone else even though originally that's what they were trying to get um and it, they're just stuck in this worse state 
So um, that's a sort of an example of this like classic multipolar trap. Basically, it's like another term for a coordination problem where um, everyone would be better off if they coordinated, but the short-term incentives acting on each individual make it so that it's mm. almost impossible to do that. Yeah, got it. So like in the stadium example, yes, everyone has made a decision that makes them better off. Right. No one's like, you know, missing out some crucial knowledge. They've made the correct decision for themselves. But in the end, every single person is worse off than when they started. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that's that's like the kind of classic multipolar trap. Um, and then I, I've sort of expanded on the definition a little bit in, in my films and stuff um, to make it more about, because I was thinking, I was like, okay, so that's, it's these like misaligned incentives um, that's sort of driving all these scenarios. But what have they all got to do in common? Well, it's to do with actually sort of competition, basically. It's like, it's when the... The, the 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 act of competition creates negative externality so you could call it like you know whether it's negative some games um often i would just call it like the god of unhealthy competition because of course competition is actually a, a neutral thing it just entirely depends on the like incentive structure within it you know the, the game within which it's enacting um and it can be create you know a race to the top it can create very positive things you know like the olympics i think it's fair to say it's actually a positive sum competition like um you know okay only fixed number of medals but like the externalities are huge like it's just like it brings the world together every four years everyone gets a lot of entertainment the, the athletes get rich etc etc um or you can have very unhealthy negative competition um and so if, if you can take the most like zoomed out view descriptor of what moloch is it's the the god of unhealthy competition competition gone wrong so negative sum and positive sum you hear a lot but like yeah where, where, where does those terms come from what is the sum that's negative or positive right um well so it's this it, 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 this is where i'm going to get like some angry game theorists after me so technically you know we play a game of chess we're playing for the point of like who wins versus who loses so that's a zero sum game um and to be fair, most games are actually zero-sum games in that there's like a finite number of points or whatever it is you're competing for. And some people win them and some people don't and usually it adds up to zero. But the thing is, is that in reality, there is no such thing as a truly zero-sum game because there's always, you know, there's always cause and effect. And if you go and play some game like in the middle of some interstellar vo or intergalactic void that has somehow, you know, perfectly insulated from the rest of the universe, um, there's always going to be some kind of externalities to, the, to that game. So even though we play a zero-sum game of chess, let's say, you know, maybe we both learn something from the game or we become better friends, uh, we have a nice time, then those, those externalities are positive. And even though this, like, departs from the, like, classic game theory definition, I, you know, I like to say then that's a positive-sum game, right? It's because it's got these, these positive externalities. You know, overall, the pie, the universe pie has gotten bigger for the game having existed. Um, conversely, a game which makes the world worse, um, you could, under that definition of negative externality, say that it's a, like essentially a negative sum game. Um, but that's why I prefer the terms healthy versus unhealthy competition because yeah, it's yeah, more, yeah. more intuitive um, and it doesn't get angry game theorists coming after you. Yeah, yeah. Because I wonder if there are there are some games right where if only you work together in, in a certain way then you could just like increase the amount of total resource you can share between yourselves. Right. right. But like maybe the only equilibria, Nash equilibria, involve one of the players like 
defecting really early on. So I guess, yeah, not all positive sum games are necessarily like healthy. I quite like right. that phrase healthy. Yes, exactly. They, just... they can also result in bad outcomes. That's why yeah. it's sort of like, I mean, this is where you then get into this like funky thing. Like, how do you measure the externalities? This is where you kind of need some form of quantification system. Dare I say it, utilitarianism or something like that, which is like trying to measure all these different like little units of whether it's happiness or, you know, all these different variables. Yeah, that's famously easy to do those. Value. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people have a general sort of decent heuristic or like intuitive sense of what when, you know, whether a, a competitive process is resulting in outcomes that actually is a net bad for the world. Um, you know, like I, the, one of the examples I gave in, in my first film was like these beauty filters on, on Instagram. Do you want me to talk about those or not? Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I was reading, kept reading meditations on Moloch and I was like, okay, how do I bring this to life? Like what? And I was like, well, what's the thing that I've personally been experiencing? Um, and you know, I was for a while trying to play the Instagram game, build my following, et cetera on there. And I noticed that if you know first of all if i posted like a the, the less clothes i was wearing in a video in a in a photo the more likes it would get um but also when these the, 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 when these all these beauty filters started appearing on there like basically like ai you just upload a photo or whatever and then you can just tweak it and it will make your eyes just a little bit bigger and like just your lips a little bit bigger and just just adjust your features very subtly um i'd notice if i used them they would also get more likes than if i didn't so there was a strong incentive to to use these these filters, but the thing is, is that there's if you actually do use them, um, there there are clear negative harm. You know, there's there's harms caused by it, not only to yourself, like because like I'd upload a photo that I would previously love without the filter, and then once I'd seen it with the filter, I now no longer liked the original, so I no longer liked my natural face, which is a problem. Um, but then also, I, I'm misleading all my my fans, and you know they'll go on there and they'll see a picture of me that is actually just completely artificial. And that makes them feel bad about themselves. I was like, Oh, I'm not as pretty as her or whatever. And that's, so, so there's, there's harms not only to yourself and your own like authenticity and integrity, but also to also for others. And, but the thing is, is that like, and I, and I, I remember speaking to like other girls who use Instagram, particularly other influencers and they're all like, Oh yeah, these filters, they make me feel terrible. It's like, okay, well we should all not use them. But because there's so many people, you can't coordinate to all stop using them. And the thing is, is, ultimately, social media influencing is a bit of a rat race. It's 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 competitive. And you are, whether you like it or not, you are kind of competing against other people within your within your niche. And in the case of like attractive girls, they're, they're, they're somewhat competing for followers against other attractive girls. So if even if the other girls aren't using it, if they think they're using the filters, because these things are so subtle, it's something hard to know, then you're kind of incentivized to do it anyway on the sly. So it's a real classic example of one of these like multipolar traps, or as I've now tried to rebrand it to, to Moloch trap, because uh, I think it's a bit more catchy. Um, so yeah, that's a really archetypal example of it. And like, once you understand that mechanism of like, I don't really want to do this thing, but if I don't do it, then the other guy will, so I might as well anyway, you can see that that's the mechanism driving almost every major problem that we've got, whether it's like a company, cutting corners on, you know, pollution regulation, you know, or whenever, you know, finding whatever edge they can to like not adhere to some kind of expensive pollution regulation. Cause it's like, well, if I don't, I know that the other guy down the road is probably doing it. So I might as well, uh, I don't farmers on the edge of the Amazon rainforest, 
they don't they don't want to destroy their rainforest, but it's like they're under such strong incentives to like get land or like take the wood on their land and sell it for lumber. Um, and they're like, well, if I don't cut this patch down, the other guy down the road's going to anyway, so I might as well. It's the same damn mechanism. Same with yeah, totally. you know the, the race the race to AI like companies and if, if there's really strong race conditions companies are incentivized to like go as fast as possible which comes at the cost of safety almost always um so again it's the same dynamic and that's what moloch is mm. and calling it moloch like giving all these different dynamics the same name is so clever because then you just immediately see oh yeah there is this common court all these things right that's it's the like monster very salient it's yeah you know, it doesn't mean it, it, it. I'm not saying it has agency. I'm not saying it's a real demon, um, it, but it, it, I think it helps to like because it's such a like blind, dumb collection of just stupid economic forces. It helps to give it like a kind of personality and a character and a, and a um, you know a persona because ultimately humans remember stuff through stories. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And like we like the idea of having good guys and bad guys and so on. And this is a very fair thing. You know, I don't like Disneyland, like good guy, bad guy, black and white thinking, but this is a clear case. Like, if we're gonna have a bad guy, this is it. <laughs> yeah. It's a kind uh, of like anti villain or something, because it's it has all these horrible effects, but there's no one in charge. Like that's the point. There's right. no heads you can lop off, which just no. kills the kills the beast, right? Right. I remember just just kind of incidentally, um, I did philosophy and I was like some series on like you know marxist theory and part of the module was why do people um wear makeup even in cases where they kind of prefer that no one had to wear makeup or like you know wear like really uncomfortable high heels or mm -hmm. follow the latest expensive fashions and the explanation was always oh you know it's like these people have just absorbed this kind of ideology and they're like living with this kind of false consciousness where they don't understand what's best for them and the obvious answer is like, no, pe maybe people actually do just know what's best for them um, and are making those decisions. Yeah, it, it's, it's like a collective the best, In the short term, that is the that is the most winning strategy. And so that's why they're doing it. Yes, we can see long term, it might not be the best, but they're stuck in a short term game. If you're trying to like get a mate, you're going to a bar to pick up a guy or whatever, chances are you're going to get his attention more if you're made up and wearing heels. Exactly. And you can like play this game and be perfectly aware that you're inside of it and that it's kind of unfortunate that it exists. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, another another nice framing of it um, is it's the, well, because it, Moloch originally came from this old Bible story about like this cult that would sacrifice everything up to and including their own children uh, to this God in order to like, they believe it would bestow upon them um, military might and power to what, in order to win wars. So what it really is, it's, a, it's the, it's, it's the God of, um, sacrifice, sacrificing other important values to win at a narrow goal. Um, and again, if you apply that to all these examples, that's that's also what's going on. It's what's going on with the beauty filters. You're sacrificing, you know, your your self worth or your authenticity or authenticity or the or the happiness of your followers in order to win at the narrow goal of getting more likes and followers. Um, same with, you know being the first to develop a new powerful technology, you know, and, and sacrificing safety in order to, to win. Um, it's, that's another framing you can, you can use. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, at this point, I'm kind of curious, like you said, it's incredibly hard to break out of these Moloch traps. And that's kind of, in some sense, what makes them so fearsome. But there have been cases where 
it looks like the world has been stuck in some multipolar trap like this. And then it just got out, or at least, you know, pockets of the world. So um, I don't know if any stories actually come to mind of, yeah, your favorite examples of this happening, of like people successfully managing to somehow coordinate to escape these traps. Yeah, I mean, a classic one was actually the um, the ozone, you know, remember the ozone layer crisis of the 70s and 80s or whatever. And then, um, you know, we understood that it was happening. It was being caused by basically CFCs um, and some other other gases being released that were, you know, seemingly an essential part of refrigeration. So, again, massive economic incentive to to use these things, to release them into the atmosphere, you know, as a byproduct of, of, of building these, these technologies. Um, the incentive was there, but it was destroying the commons. Um, and yet we managed to create the, the Montreal Protocol, which banned the CFCs and, and like actually held. And people stopped using them and they, they found a way to innovate to build the same technologies without those crappy things. So that's, that's one example. Um, probably the best example, though, is actually <laughs> the fact that we managed to reduce the number of... Um, you know, we were we were on this like race to the bottom of producing more and more nuclear weapons on Earth until they got to right. like, like, yeah. high point of sixty thousand or whatever the insane number was. You know, like more like ten times as many as you need to like probably destroy the world. Um and that seemed like that was just gonna continue and continue and continue. And yet somehow now we have managed to reduce the number down to twelve thousand or thereabouts. You know, so that was an example of like reversing what seemed like an impossible Moloch trap, you know, race to the bottom uh, situation. And all the fact that like not every country on earth has nuclear weapons, like technically it was within their rights. Like if the US and the UK and everyone else was starting to develop them, like the incentives are there because they want to protect themselves and their sovereignty, right? You know, um, Italy or Norway or whatever, you know, country wants to have them or well, actually, no, let's pick a more random country, let's say like Argentina, you know, Technically, the incentive is there for them to also want to build them, but through um, a combination of like good protocols and actually just like really good education and like higher wisdom through those 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 countries, they decided to not play the game. They essentially stepped themselves out of the game. They took a short term risk, uh, and you know actually had to like sort of short term cost, but actually then long term good for the long term whole. Like so, that's an example of actually like a positive sort of sacrifice in some way. Another one is the um, the Antarctic Treaty uh you know again a huge patch of land um could be militarily useful um it's not very useful for growing food or anything but like uh, you know land is generally useful and they then there was the antarctic treaty treaty signed in 1959 um by 12 countries to all agree look let's just preserve antarctica for only peaceful scientific purposes and again that's held as far as we can tell yeah totally um so it's possible to coordinate even in these like big sort of multipolar trap type situations. Yeah. And I kind of wonder if there is a common thread to how those things all happened, because there's a point of view, right? Where, you know, you're wearing the hat of a very kind of theoretical formalism focused like economist, let's say, where you're modeling all the actors as these like perfectly self-interested actors and there's no um, kind of coercive force that can help bind agreements. And from that point of view, it's just like, there's no space in that in that model for how these agreements possibly form, but they do. And like maybe part of the reason is because a country, for instance, is not this like perfect self-interested agent. It's like made up of people who care about like the future of the world, mm. at least a little bit. 
and also of scientists who like you know care about um seeing their findings get turned into like sensible policy and like maybe that fact is kind of important like humans care about one another at least to some extent yes um, i mean yeah that's the thing humans are naturally very cooperative you know, we, yes, we can be competitive, but we are also one of the best species on earth at cooperating with each other. Um, you know, one of the best analogies, it's like, we're not, we're, we're apes who behave like ants. You know, we're these large mammalian creatures, but we are able to coordinate millions of us, billions of us if we need to, and like things like shared language and other things and build these incredibly complex complex civilizations, which we would not be able to do were it not for our actual, odd, arguably default behavior, I think, is more cooperation and coordination than it is to compete. It's just that there is these like almost like parasitic forces, the, you know, Moloch, if you could imagine it as a parasite, um, that... Uh, you know, that will arrive, you know, just basically when there certain ingredients are correct, you know, are right, where the incentives are strong enough, the, you know, scarcity is, is strong enough. Um, and the, and the short term incentives acting on the visual are powerful enough that it will create these, these negative spirals. Yeah. And I guess like, yeah, one useful analogy is maybe to immune systems, right? So like in bodies, occasionally a cell will go rogue and just start replicating itself. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, it's not cooperating anymore, but it's becoming self-interested. And like the reason that people don't just almost immediately die of cancer is that we have like immune systems. Right. And I guess we also have collective immune systems. Like we have police forces, for instance, but also mm -hmm. like subtler kinds of social pressures yeah, against social just like norms. being an asshole. Yeah, exactly. Um, we, we, we are very good. Again, we evolved out of tribes that did better if they cooperated and had strong immune responses to people who were like you, you, acting mollicky. Someone was taking more than their fair share from the like the hunt that day. You know, if someone did that too much, then you'd get kicked out of the tribe. So there were these really powerful immune responses to selfish behavior. Yeah, um, it's very cool, right? Like you yeah. might think that, okay, imagine there was some mutation someone were born with today that causes them to be just incredibly selfish, like psychopathically selfish. Wouldn't that mutation just like quickly overrun the population because, you know, they like hoover up all the resources? And the answer, like you say, is no, because people recognize it and right. um, uh, penalize it. it. Down. This is why yeah. like psychopaths don't, it's why not everyone is a psychopath, right? No, exactly. Uh, why, because I mean, the species would have died out pretty fast if, if, if everyone had, if that had successfully propagated. It's a bit of a chicken and egg, uh, I think, but... That said, that doesn't mean that we, you know, it isn't in principle possible that like effectively, you know, that, that, you know, that psychopath, that cancer, whatever you want to call it, um, couldn't with enough technological power yeah, that's overrun true. and break the game, you know, yeah. ruin it for everyone because they're so effective. Because it's currently easy to detect and currently like you don't have much of an right. edge if you're a psychopath. Yeah. Right now we're sort of up we didn't, you know, our immune response was always sufficient when we had, you know, in, in, in pre exponential tech days, but now we have like exponential type technologies. Um, yeah. Like so you could think of like these arguments as applied to AI, right? Which I guess is partly where this is going. And maybe there's this kind of argument through natural selection that the quote unquote psychopathic tendencies in AI systems like overrun the population even if basically no one wants that outcome, um, which would be a bit worrying. 
Yeah, I mean, especially if we're if we're like going to start training AIs on very adversarial type data sets, you know, the internet. Like, do you really want to like train uh, tra- train an LLM on? 4chan like that's a highly adversarial <laughs> unpleasant yeah. environment um i mean or even like anything it's, i think it's a little bit more innocuous you know there are certain like arguably you could train a train an ai on like call of duty or something like that that's like that's a very realistic simulation of part of aspects of human life but like do we want an ai that's like coming out of that kind of environment where it's highly zero you know it's 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 negative sum dressed up as zero sum like type you know interactions um you know like it's war right um those are not the values we want to be instilling into an incredibly powerful technology that has agency but then also beyond that like we've also got the issue of ai is going to speed up any like the the trouble with it with it with ai is that it's you know and the blessing of it is that it's like such a multi-purpose it's it's almost not right to even call it a technology because it's it's so ubiquitous. It can be used, you know, if you're hacking intelligence itself, you anything, you know, it can be used for almost anything, right? Achieving almost any goal, because that's the definition of intelligence. It's like your ability to achieve goals across a wide range of environments. So if you get, you can build all these different types of intelligences anywhere where there is an incentive to use it economically, it will get used for. So this leads to this like slightly more like, it's, it's you know, it's not as, I don't even want to say like long-term as AGI because I don't think AGI is a long-term risk anymore. It's pretty damn near. Um, but there's there's a like an even more immediate problem we have to sort of get to grips with, which is as AI becomes more ubiquitous and easy to implement for all kinds of things, any company or system that is misaligned with the good of the whole is going to get sped up. You know, if there, you know, there is definitely like certain industries which you know you know let's say we get better at marketing alcohol um you you can use ai to market alcohol more more efficiently to people um you know that's i think it's fair to say the alcohol industry is probably misaligned for the good of humanity um or there might some people might not disagree okay the meth industry let's take something like where people all agree there's like this is a net negative the world will be better off if like um you know or the world will be worse if if we apply ai to you know if if the meth dealers all suddenly have really powerful ais of figuring out how to like sell as much meth as possible Mm -hmm. to people um that would be an example of like just a misaligned industry being amplified and accelerated by ai and that's a sort of more near-term thing that we really need to get to grips with because arguably you could say that a lot of our um like a lot of our industries are actually just totally misaligned with what's good for humanity because like look at what it's been doing to the biosphere for the last you know 50 years um mo- even even like you know even the, like the innocuous things like anything that uses a lot of energy right now um it, if if you're going to then speed up that rate of economic growth where most of our energy is still coming from fossil fuels. That's bad if we're using AI to speed that up. But the flip side is we could probably use AI to now figure out how to produce more clean energy. So it's it's just like a it's like a, it's a bunch of like exponential races. And the question is which one oh, let's make sure all the first. defensive good ones win exactly. out or at least maintain parity. Yeah, I'm curious to zoom in on that um analogy you suggested there, right? Which is between advanced AI systems and companies. So there's maybe some things in common. So, you know, companies are often more competent than any individual person, right? Mm -hmm. They're often enormously powerful. 
they often kind of act like agents or they could be described as acting in, in that way where their goal is something like maximizing profit within the law, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but also to get to that goal, they act as if they have these instrumental goals, you know, so they want to accumulate influence. They want to improve their reputation through advertising and stuff. Um, and also they can do harms, like you said, in the case of climate change, when they're not internalizing those harms, right? right. It's just like someone else's problem. Um, yeah, I'm curious, like how you think about that analogy, like what lessons can we learn from it kind of with respect to AI? I heard someone recently you sort of describe how essentially a corporation, its incentive structure, the way it's designed, it, it is in directly incentivized to kind of behave like a psychopath in the, <laughs> because, because not always, but like. Doesn't have a conscience. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't inherently have a conscience. It's only has a conscience if the people so that make it up have a conscience, which to be fair, most almost always is the case. But even then, ultimately the way, the, the corporate structure is set up is that they have one main optimization function and that is maximize shareholder profit. Now that's fine if that metric is perfectly aligned with, you know, not just the people within the company, but they're like, you know, the, the customers, but also the wider whole. If that, if, 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 if a company's profits are directly aligned to, you know, a healthy biosphere, you know, mental health of, of humanity, a healthy informational landscape, great, then that's, that's an example of like an aligned company. But in most cases, there's usually some kind of slight misalignment. Um, and, yeah, right. you know, that's, and that's where these like externalities come in. Um, often, you know, because unfortunately, like just also the very, the very act of like trying to put a dollar value on certain things invariably loses a bunch of information. Um, I guess we were talking about that right at the start, right? Where it's hard to put on dollar value on like the aesthetic. Right. There, 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 these, of... there are these intangible values yeah. which are incredibly hard to quantify. But the way that markets work is that they need to be quantified. So any values that aren't being quantified are just not being incorporated into the market. They're not being priced in. And so you're like, you, 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 these companies, it's not like, again, they don't want to be doing this, but they're like, they're just the structure of the way the market works is that it's invariably set up to fail in terms of. Um, or at least invariably going to create some kind of misalignment. And again, if you then stick a bunch of AI on it to speed it up and make it even more efficient, you're just going to amplify that misalignment further and further and further and further. Yeah. Um, so one thing we have seen that has worked to a degree with like stopping companies from being, you know, too out of whack with, what, you know, the, the, the wider whole of what humanity needs is regulation, right? We have added regulations on casinos to, you know, make sure that they are doing at least some modicum of like checking whether like people are getting too addicted to their products, you know, are they gambling too much? Um, we put regulation on polluting industries to like, you know, the, you know, if they were left to their own devices, they are not incentivized to like use, you know, switch to more expensive, cleaner fuel sources. Um, but with regulation, like they get penalized if they don't. Um, so that's, it's, it's not, Clearly, it's not working perfectly, but it's at least sort of slowed down the problem a bit. Regulation has has certainly helped. And so that suggests to me that we should be considering that when it comes to like these new AI agents and so on. Like we need some degree of regulation there because that's been our best mechanism thus far of like minimizing the externalities of um, slightly misaligned industries. Yes, I totally agree. And also, I guess 
in most industries, especially consumer industries, there are like pretty clear lines of liability. So I just know that, you know, if McDonald's serves me some like food that gives me food poisoning, I, I'm just like confident that I can sue them. Right. And and that's just like a clear reason for them to really worry about ever doing that. Um, currently, I guess it's very unclear, like where does a liability fall for an AI model that is like leased out by one company to another? And if it's, as long as it's unclear who to sue, then the, the reasons against not letting that happen don't exist in the first place. So just like, yeah, borrowing all these analogies seems pretty, pretty useful. And I guess, yeah, so the general idea, right, is like companies, they have something like a utility function, or it can be described roughly in that way, mm-hmm. where that is, you know, roughly like the profit motive that often misses out real harms and benefits, doesn't internalize them, AI systems, by analogy, they're going to be like optimizing even even better and presumably therefore like causing even more harm as long as they're not internalizing those effects. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just like to continue rambling, I'm kind of curious, yeah, if there are like disanalogies or there are places where this comparison breaks down, right? Because you might wonder like if the whole AI risk arguments really go through for companies, like why haven't companies just caused ruin, you know, or like, why isn't there just one company that's taken over the world or anything? Like we're, we're, thinking, we're coexisting with companies pretty well. In fact, you know, I get a lot from them. So yeah, what's going on? Well, yes, yes, we are. But would we continue to if status quo carried on for the next 50 years? Or had, would we already be in more hot water than we are already were it not for regulation? Um, or, you know, all liabilities, all these, like, essentially these, like, checks and balances and, like, shaping of the game in a way that, you know, that to try and align incentives a bit more. Um, I would argue no. So, yeah. I don't know. It's not clear to me. I, I, I'm, like, I, it's, it's, it's honestly, it's a topic I feel kind of bipolar on because in some ways, yeah, like, I'm sitting here living my best life with all these wonderful gadgets and everything is incredible. Um right now but at the same time i'm the more i read into it the more acutely aware i am of just like how much i've sort of like i'm borrowing from the future essentially in terms of or at least my products are um you know i don't mean to say make myself sound like you know i'm guilt-ridden i'm, I'm not particularly uh, i probably should be but you know i'm not uh but like you know they, the the thing is is that like the the f- so many of the like rare earth materials that are like used in computers for example your iphone and so on are massively subsidized. Like we're not actually factoring in the the real, like if you could see the rate of depletion of these things and just how rare these things are, we would not be just like casually tossing an iPhone onto the trash heap after four years and getting a new one. If we like, if we were truly pricing in the value of what the, like how rare these materials are, the markets aren't like, they're not properly doing that. They're just like, they're, they're very short-sighted, these markets. They're very, very, very short-sighted. So yes, it's true that like technically with the current supply and demand, like this is the price of an iPhone and that that that's therefore its price. But it's like, if you could actually value in that, like the, the cost of these rare earth materials and like how at some point, if we carry on, we're going to start running out of them. They would be, it would be so much more expensive than it actually is. So we're essentially borrowing value from the future. Um, same with like fossil fuels. Like we are, you know, we're burning through oil like there's no tomorrow. Um, pardon the pun you know but, <laughs> um, but like though it is getting harder and harder to reach it like even you know even without all the like environmental problems of it like at some point we're going to run out of oil and we are not weaning ourselves off it fast enough 
now again hopefully there might be you know that there's always these like step change technologies that come along like for example if we can get the superconductor thing like if this little magical thing that i think is incredibly likely to actually be truly a room temperature ambient pressure superconductor but let's say we do discover something like that sure then we then we're going to innovate maybe we're going to be able to innovate our way through this fast enough but right now we're like again like the price of oil should actually be much higher than what it is given that it is a scarce resource that we're running out of and it is so valuable and it's so integral to our to our society but we're just kind of like on a coke binge um you know think of it that way like someone uh nate hagans describes it as the carbon pulse that we're in like our society has suddenly gone through a boom because we discovered all this lovely wonderful um rich hydrocarbons um and we're just like wow i can't believe what we found and we're just going on society's gone on a huge coke binge um and so we are living the fruits of that coke binge right now but that doesn't mean to say that there's a not a huge dopamine crash coming when we suddenly you know it starts running scarcer so um now i appreciate that sounds doomy i think you know there is a way out of this and that might be through a through AI, um, B through just our own intelligence and like innovations. Um, you, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of emergent things that can come along that can like maybe save our ass. But um, at the same time, we've got then to like deal with the Moloch problem of like, there's maximum incentive to rush as fast as, you know, as fast as we can with develop, you know, finding these new innovations. But the more we like dig into Pandora's box of these more and more powerful technologies, um, the more likely they are to have like dual use, um, you know, in, in that they can be used also for day, you know, AI could solve all our problems, could also like amplify all of the existing ones much more and come up with a whole bunch of new ones we couldn't have even imagined. Yeah, if you just um, take an AI-powered AI rocket on an oil company, it's just doing what it's already doing, but better. Um, right. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's just like a bunch of really, it's just, yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just a very exciting time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an apt conclusion. We're getting to see how this big dance is gonna play out. May you yeah, live in interesting sure. times. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, one thought that comes to mind here, right, is as long as we have in mind this comparison between companies doing harm, right? The like Coke binge model of corporate harm. And we're thinking about what that could tell us about AI systems. Maybe they're like, you know, fueling those companies. Maybe they're doing their own thing. Like here's one thought, right? Maybe in some sense we're fortunate um, given that companies are a bit like these kind of learning optimizing agents that people tinker around with in AI and aren't currently like actually doing things in the real world, but might do soon. But insofar as that analogy holds, they're like really crude, slow motion versions where, you know, what, what's the kind of the feedback signals they're getting? It's like going bust or at least, you know, profits changing, but that's, that's like a quarterly signal. And it's very crude. You don't really know how you, how you got there. Um, so subject to very, like very weak selection and other like training signals. And also like, it just turns out that if you have a, like a bunch of a hundred people in the same building trying to do something, mm -hmm. if you like double the number of people in that building, you're not doubling the productivity of that company, like ever. <laughs> people have to talk to one another and like hierarchies are really inefficient. So you have these diseconomies of scale, which is maybe quite fortunate, at least as, as long as companies are doing bad things. But I don't know, maybe that just doesn't apply to powerful AI systems. And maybe you could just like keep getting right. more productive um, and better optimizing whatever you're optimizing for. 
like without that curve bending mm. where we have this just like human shaped reason why the curve needs to bend for companies. Right. Because I mean, I think a lot of the, you know, those diseconomies of scale, I would imagine, I mean, I'm not an expert in company structure by any means. And like, you know, I've never run anything uh, more than like three people. Um, but yeah, I can imagine that's more like an artifact of just like meat space. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Also yeah, the fact like, that humans need to be like born and raised for like, you know, 20-ish right. years before they can like become economically productive. Yeah, we're slow and we have, and we also have these like strange biases and preferences that we need. Um, we care about things like status. There's all these, the, 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 there are all those like sort of things which I can imagine would be a sort of somewhat like a limiting factor, um, you know, that would create inefficiencies essentially that wouldn't constrain you know, multi-agent AI systems. Um, I mean, they could probably be programmed in, um, and who knows, maybe they are just naturally emergent in everything, but it doesn't, I don't see why that would be the case. Um, we certainly can't like hinge our, you know, hopes on that. So uh, yeah, if, any, if anything, I would, I would, I would expect, you know, one thing that we do that does seem to sort of somewhat hold true in nature is that, you know, if you get a bunch of things sort of working in symbiosis together, a bunch of agents, eventually some kind of emergent property comes out um, where actually it's uh, the opposite. It's like, it's actually an economy of scale. You'll like get like these, like the, the, the sum of the parts, sorry, the sum of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And I, I could see that, you know, you make, you, you make, you add more and more and more agents to a system like in AI, it would actually, I can see it being like more of like a super linear relationship as opposed to some kind of like um, S curve or anything like that. So, yeah. Good news. I do just remember like you talking about complexity as this thing that matters. And I don't know if that like those thoughts are still in your head, but like I remember that being very interesting to chat about. So, yeah. Um, well, I was thinking a bit about, you know, what do the like you know let's say an ai gone wrong or you know if moloch gets its way in in creating some race to the bottom that destroys the biosphere or something like that you know what is actually happening what is the end result of that um you know let's say all life on earth ends um or the universe gets tiled with paper clips as you know the classic ex thought experiment um what what is actually happening there and it was like oh what's happening is that the system is basically becoming very, very boring. Right. It is, it is losing, you know, if, if like right now earth is probably, I mean, certainly the most complex place in the solar system are probably my, my suspicion is the, ga the galaxy, if not beyond. Um, and, and by complexity, you know, whether you want to use Kolmogorov complexity, I can never say it, um, you know, whatever definition of complexity you want to use. Um, it's, it's a very rich, nuanced, hard to describe place in, you know, if you were to try and simulate it, it's very difficult. It's very mm -hmm. difficult. hard to take totally, a snapshot yeah. that, that captures every detail, incredibly hard. And what Moloch does or a misaligned AI that like, you know, goes and tiles the universe with optimization function X, um, what that's doing is it's basically permanently curtailing any potential new complexity and making a very boring, it's basically like a, it's like a, it's like a form of heat death. It's like entropy is kind of, it's not even entropy. It's just like boringness is winning. And that's very, very sad. And that's why I think why, you know, that that's why I have such a like 
you know, visceral negative reaction to the concept because it's like if you look at how the universe has been playing out it seems like if it was to have a preference it wants more and more emergent complexity more to, like levels to of interesting yeah like just more richness yeah. and beauty and weirdness and diversity right yeah. it's like like there were cells like, and then exactly. those cells like integrated into organisms and then right. they like formed societies yeah, like organs turned into bodies, which turned into communities, which turned into societies, which turned into civilizations. Like, like it seems like things become more and more emergent and, and rich. Uh, you know, emergence create gives rise to greater complexity over time. And so anything, you know, and that's why I was like, and that's what Moloch does. It's like, it's a permanent, well, it's either a temporary or in, in extreme cases, a permanent complexity curtailer, you know, it slaps it down. Um, so then I got thinking, I was like, okay, so if that's what Moloch does, you know, that's, and that's through a result of unhealthy competitive processes, what's the inverse? And the, if Moloch is the god of lose-lose situations, what's the, what's the god of win-win situations? And I couldn't get past that name. Uh, I got stuck on the term <laughs> win-win. Um, so that's another, if you want to go into definitions of Moloch again, Moloch is that which permanently curtails emergent complexity and win-win is that which enables more and more emergent complexity. So if win-win was to have a, you know, this is now we're getting a little bit esoteric, but you know, if we were to think in like personalities of what these entities are, um, again, they're largely sort of a result, they're just like a, probably a collection of incentives. But if we were to give them a personality, Moloch is very monofocused, you know, psychopathic, if you want to say, like focused on winning one particular narrow metric. Um, it's very good at doing that, but it's very short-sighted and it doesn't have the wisdom to see the greater whole. Win-win is, it likes a bit of competition. It likes to win a game. It like, you know, it loves games. It likes to have fun and like, oh, we're gonna, oh, we're gonna have a little zero sum game here. Let's play. Um, but it's also wise enough to see the wider whole and slap down the competition if it starts to get a little bit too, um, you know, it starts to have too many negative externalities, if it starts to curtail too much complexity. If it doesn't like cannibalize itself, you know, like right. makes it harder to have more competition in the future. Yes. Um. So win-win loves competition, but it also loves cooperation and coordination and all the like diverse other ways of interacting. It just wants more cool stuff. It wants more fun stuff to emerge. Um, to put another framing on it, there's this, there's this great book called uh, Finite and Infinite Games. Um, so Moloch just wants to win the finite game right in front of it. Win-win just wants to keep the game going. It just wants everyone to get to play more games. Um, so yeah, that's just my like philosophical, quasi-religious musing on the on the on the topic of complexity. Um, yeah, I really like this. I mean, like one gloss on that, right, is that um, you might step back and ask these questions about like, what does a good future look like versus a bad one? And like, if we're building these AIs, then like whose values do we build into these AIs and stuff? And these like feel pretty intractable, but here's a proxy, which we're not saying is like the final word on what's the best right. or worst outcome, but this seem pretty instructive, which is which futures are just incredibly boring yes. and which futures keep the game going. Like they keep the options open, Things and get hard to describe. Exactly. Like, you're like, Ugh, like, Ugh. and I think it's partially, unfortunately, one of the reasons why, you know, there's so much dystopian fiction and compared to utopian or protopian, which I was saying is actually a better term, um, partly because like dystopian, it's like, it's, 
it's a low, it's a lower complexity state. It's easier to imagine because it's actually more boring. Like it, 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 and so it's like, well, you know, everyone's like struggling and, uh, and like everyone's stuck in this thing and it's like factory farms forever or whatever, like nightmare scenario you can come up with. But it's a low complexity state because it's actually quite boring and hard to describe. And that's part of the reason why it's hard to describe these amazing futures because by definition, they are so rich and complex and changing and dynamic and diverse. It's like, wow, where do I even fucking begin? Well, I can yeah, right. Like if you reach for like the most obvious utopia, like right. maybe it's just a bunch of people like on Soma or whatever the drug is from Brave New Worlds lined up in a row. And like, maybe crudely speaking, this maximizes something you thought was good, like hedonic pleasure. Monarchy. Yeah, but yeah, there's yeah. this obvious intuitive reaction to that, which is like, nope, not for me. Yeah. That's just like an incredibly boring world. Um, and I just, yeah, this like idea of complexity, just the kind of common sense idea of what it means to have a complex arrangement of stuff versus a boring arrangement really nicely like explains the difference between those like kind of pseudo utopias that just feel incredibly off and the kinds of utopias you might feel really excited about yeah exactly. and, and that's why actually uh, the term protopia is much better than utopia because it's describing because utopia sounds like a kind of again steady state like an end state that like oh we've reached utopia and it's like kind of now fixed or something which now going back to the like the concept of emergence and complexity is actually now not a, you know it's not the optimal thing whereas protopia is like it's 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 something that is evolving and gives space to evolve and is going to become something else and something else and something else that feels both intuitively and logically like the the right direction yeah totally and also something in which i at least imagine that people coming from lots of different kind of values backgrounds can agree on like we can disagree about what exactly is the best way to lead your life but we can agree that having the space to live your life in that way and having a, like, a variety of of options in that respect is a good thing compared mm. to the alternative where like you're enforcing some very narrow thing um this is like so obvious but just like really nice to say out loud um one of the most beautiful quotes I've ever heard is love is that which enables choice, which, you know, it's, it, you can be like, oh, but like choice is not always good. You get like option anxiety and so on. It's like, no, no, no. But you can take that one level deeper. Like ultimately a loving act is if you can empower someone such that they are better making at making the right choice for themselves. Yeah. I really like that. That's a deeply loving act. And again, that's so win-win. Like win-win is like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like make more choices, do more stuff. Let, get smarter so that you can make better things. You know, don't, don't make, you know, like minimize your mistakes, but get out there and like increase optionality. And and and, and um, so it's, it's simultaneously freedom giving and also empowering to make the best of that freedom. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just such a beautiful quote. It's by a guy called Forrest Landry. Forrest Landry, okay, nice. It reminds me of, um something significantly less beautiful and <laughs> more nerdy, but there are discussions of how to measure welfare in countries, right? Mm -hmm. And like one thing you could do is just look at the GDP per capita. And this is obviously useful, but it misses something important, which I think you kind of spoke to. And so like another view is this kind of capabilities approach, where you're not asking how much cash do people have, but you're asking like, what options are open to people? Like what freedoms are open to people, even if they don't, take them like what can someone realistically do 
choose right. to do in that circumstance. And that just seems like a very right. You don't yeah. like you're, oh, I'm super rich. I can buy all the food and like material objects I want, but I can't drive my car down the street because I'm female, or I can't you know travel or marry who I want and so on. Like you can be materially rich but freedom poor. One point here, right, is like we're talking about this thing called complexity as if it has this like clear definition. I think it's fair to say that it basically doesn't, right? So you you Highly use this Kolmogorov of complexity thing. But I actually think this is just not what we're talking about, right? Because like one way to really max out this measure is just to have effectively white noise, like something which is incredibly hard to succinctly right. describe. But that's that's not the thing, right? Like white noise is not utopia. Um it's this kind of like complexity at every level. Like it's, maybe it, there are operationalizations. It's the dance, it's some degree of you want something that is a dance between patternicity and randomness, right? The randomness gives space for new stuff to emerge, but the patternicity gives meaning to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like there are all these kind of terms which are like close to it in physics and stuff. Yeah. Like self-organized criticality and stuff. But yeah, it's like the whole Shannon entropy stuff throws a real spanner in the works because it's like that's a high complexity state but i know the one i like to sort of lean back on is just like um sean carroll described it really well in his uh book the big bigger picture uh, or the big picture um about just like entropy increases over time but complexity you know it, it, it's like, like an upside down you right yeah it's like it's like, it's like this parabola yeah the, the starting conditions of the big bang were actually very very simple it was like kind of yeah right right, right. nothing in a ball of hotness and stuff and then it like expanded and expanded, but over time as things like cooled and coalesced and there were slight differences, those then like evolved into, you know, clusters of material, which then turned into galaxies, et cetera. And then all the, all the, all the cool stuff. Um, and so like, again, like it's, it, entropy has been increasing, complexity has been increasing, but in theory, some kind of maximum would happen. Um, after which, you know, basically all the free energy is starting to get used up and it can't make more cool stuff and it starts going into this like it's just everything it gets more and more spread out yeah i just remember this one image from that book is um stirring milk into coffee mm -hmm. so you like you pour the milk in first if i'm remembering right and you just have a layer of milk and a layer of coffee and that's like very simple it's just two blocks and then you stir it and you get all these like swirls and it's quite complicated to describe like we still don't have a great grasp on like fluid dynamics but it's just very cool to look at and then eventually it just becomes milky coffee. And that right. again, at least from a sufficiently like granular level of description is very easy to describe and also to predict. You just like use thermodynamics rather than fluid dynamics. Um, and like, you really want to stay in the kind of like swirly bit. Yes, <laughs> and that's, that's the like the top of the upside down you. Oh, and like yeah. currently life is the swirly bit. And like, let's just keep swirling. <laughs> you keep doing um, that, yeah. Uh, you know, people have described entropy as the final end boss. I don't think it is the final end boss. Entropy is just like, entropy is kind of a tool it's giving us it's giving us the space to do stuff the end boss is is you know molecule dynamics and um things that try and stop the complexity which is not really entropy it's it's something else yeah um, right 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 yeah um yeah like we have a lot of time before we run out of free energy like this is not the this is not no. the worry um yeah. nice do you want to quickly talk Much about bigger problems before the heat death of the universe that's yeah that yeah i can believe yeah. that um <laughs> Do you think this semiconductor is real <laughs> since it's in the news? Oh, 
Uh, we should say like the paper came out yesterday. Is that right? Right, right. Uh, two days ago, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I hope it is, but I, if you know, to bring it back to betting, if I had to put money on, I would bet on the no side in terms of like, well, okay, define real. Is it truly a superconducting material we've not discovered before that operates at room temperature or higher? and at ambient pressure crucially because we've got we've had room temperature superconductors now but they they like are crazy crazy mm -hmm. you know basically you have to make them a diamond an anvil of yeah. like two diamond points and you're, it's like gigapascals type density uh, sorry uh, pressure um so bayes would say my you know my priors would say no um given because it won't even because also the way i think I haven't read the full paper like entirely in their methodology, but it's like they're fairly basic chemicals. You know, it's a bit of lead and some other stuff. Like, what, what, what is it? I can't remember what they are. But anyway, um, and and like they grind them up with a pestle and mortar, <laughs> and it's like just like Say some magic words. It's just like a few thousand dollars worth of lab equipment would be sufficient to basically replicate this. It sounds like you know with really trivial materials. Whereas like the previous, you know the the previous room temperature superconductor i went to the lab um in rochester new york and it's it, it like you know it's probably a couple of million dollars worth of equipment like it's incredibly expensive like super like fine-tuned there's lasers it's like it's like real cutting edge stuff that it took to make that so this would mean that basically we've had this basic ass thing sitting under our noses this whole time um and I hope that's the case because it's like the, you know, the implications, if we do have this like fairly trivial to make superconducting material that can just exist, you know, in this atmosphere, like it's going to be a game changer, just like energy efficiency, like you just, you name it, like it's going to just transform our economy and give us, you know, like nuclear, nuclear fusion, I think is going to be relatively trivial if we can fix, figure this out, for example, among how, many other how things. So? Um, uh, <laughs> sorry, I put you on the spot. There. No, it's fine. It, I, I just saw someone say that on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> That's a um, good stuff. But I, I mean, I think because part of the problem is like keeping, you know, there's because the superconducting thing means there's no resistance, and resistance is like you know energy loss essentially, right? It's waste heat, and that causes problems. It like it, you know it breaks things down. Uh, apparently, it will make nuclear fusion much much easier. You will be able to just like transport energy electricity. Uh, along you know vast distances you know we could have a solar panel in the mojave desert and connect it to new york and it would it would like lose basically no energy along the way like game changer um so it my priors are that like there's just a mistake being there's a mistake going on it's something else it's maybe some kind of um diamagnetic property that's making it look like it's levitating or like there's a, there's a bunch of other explanations for why this thing's happening. Also, like, you know, these are fairly unknown scientists. Like, the paper itself is, like, written kind of weirdly and poorly. There's, like, a spelling mistake in the, like, literal the title, title of the paper. Yeah. I don't know. It's it, There's there's a lot of, like, weird things going on. I, my my money's on that it's just, like, a, a like a, a, an earnest mistake. Now, that's not to say that it's not pointing at something useful. Like, who knows? But it, 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 it's, you know, as always, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. So... That's why my money's not on it. That said, man, it would be amazing if that's the case. It would also be like astonishing because it means that we're like, what other low hanging fruit have we just It'd be been so well? Right, I was going to say that, like, ignoring. Yeah, it would be an update 
not just on the world's going to be transformed by this one technology, but also, huh, seems like there are probably a ton more bizarrely low-hanging fruit, at least in material science, but also probably other bits of engineering, which is just like, you add like AI that can do R&D very quickly, and then you just, you get out a very different world. Yeah. Um, Nice. Should we do some final questions? Yeah. Um, Sweet. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of curious if you have an answer on this. One question we often ask people, especially, you know, academics is, if there is just any kind of research or other work that you'd just be very excited to see someone do, especially maybe someone listening to this. Yeah, and I wonder if there's an answer in your case. Anyone who is sort of inspired in, uh, to try and help solve this, like, you know, this meta problem of, of Moloch, like how do we find better coordination mechanisms? How do we, you know, more trustless po- protocols? I mean, there are already people working on this. Um the, I did an interview with the bankless guys, like they're kind of like a good resource on that, um, you know, using cryptography uh, to create these z- zero proof protocols, basically, where you don't need to trust other parties in order to coordinate. Um, those would be super helpful. Um, I do think just I've been going down the spiral recently, it seems like climate change is you know, I, I don't know, I was kind of distracted from being concerned about climate change just because it's like, oh man, AI is coming and like synthetic biology and all these like, you know, very, th- these exponential technologies that are coming made me sort of just sort of forget about climate change. And then I started looking at some of the data this year and like things are getting wacky out there, like five or six sigma ev- like level events in terms of like the Antarctic sea ice is like a five sigma low or something like that. You know, that is wild. Yeah. It might even be six sigma. I can't remember. It's, it's one of those. Either way, it's insane um, in terms of like expectation. Um, you know, maybe it's just an anomaly, but it's like that level of anom- anomaly is insane. And I'm like, there are these like, you know, talk about complexity. Like there's nothing. It's one of the most complex systems on earth is, is the climate and the weather, like the climate specifically. Um, and who knows what kind of feedback loops this might, you know, tipping points this might create. Like, you know, if you have 20% less Antarctic sea ice, which is, I think that's what there is currently, 20% than usual, that's 20% less albedo, you know, ref- less reflectivity. So that's 20% more energy that it's already absorbing. Plus like the oceans are already like kind of getting capped out on what they can absorb. Like there was bar- like literally like hot tub temperature seawater in my off the coast of miami like a couple of days ago yeah it was like 39 degrees celsius or 38 degrees celsius water like what yes like 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 unheard of stuff now again i'm getting this information from twitter like it could be wrong but either way like th- th- there's enough s- signal going along that like some of it is going to be valid and it does make me wonder like we shouldn't i you know i think again geoengineering needs to be taken incredibly carefully and again like that's a dual use you develop the ability to like change the climate i mean we're already doing it inadvertently but like to actively change it now you're creating again an immensely powerful dual use technology that could be used for incredible harm but we should probably be doing some degree of like meta level research into like what are the potential harms and the benefits yeah, of totally. possible different types of geoengineering before we start actually then building them and also, like, I guess to combine the two things you've said here, like, 
are there consensus mechanisms or ways for the to get like international coordination around geoengineering? Right. So you don't have these kind of really thorny political worries. Exactly. It's going to get split by the culture wars, like yeah. everything gets split by the culture wars, you know? And so we need, we that's that's another thing, like we need some kind of culture war proof ability to solve hard problems. Because like, like talk about dream Moloch situation, like Moloch, Moloch is the culture wars, like it loves it. Like it's the God of war and sacrifice people. If it was a brain worm infecting people's minds, this is how it would manifest. Um, but I'm not saying again, that's what's happening, but it's, it's so understanding how we can better solve these really tense, tricky coordination problems, which are invariably going to create a lot of differing opinions. Um, yeah, I saw actually a really cool thing the other day, sort of collective intelligence mechanisms. There's this cool thing called the society library I came across recently, which is like society library. Yeah. It's, it's, it's mapping out, um, the terrain of arguments on again, like really contentious topics. So they did one on oh, actually cool. like the D Diablo Canyon nuclear yeah. reactor, like the debate around that. And like, um, I think she said it, it took like eight full-time analysts about eight months to build this thing. It's like this, it's, it's like decision tree that explodes with all the different, uh, not decision tree, but just like a tree of like arguments. And, um, yeah. I People, mean, I think belief mapping feels like a relevant, yeah, it's, 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 it's like a really fancy belief mapping, but it could be used. And, and, and what's nice about it is that like the more arguments you put into it, the stronger it gets, even the wacky arguments, because they are true. Like if there's people out there believing that like actually the, the earth is round and therefore we, sorry, the earth is flat um, and therefore we can't, you know, geoengineering isn't possible. Like the geoengineering debate um, would benefit from something like this. Yeah, it does seem like, you know, there are these really important high stakes, complicated questions in the world. And currently it seems to me the best technology we have to, like arbitrate those questions, or sorry, to you know discuss those questions, is you send me a bunch of text and then I send you a bunch of text back and then we keep doing that. <laughs> it's just surprising that we haven't figured out something better that's right. more widely adopted. Yeah, because um, by definition, any culture wars topic is highly complex. It, it's not. So, it, it's it's a culture war because there are truly many nuanced arguments for and against, and everything in between, and like unclear outcomes and so on. And so if we can have better ways of like modeling all of those sort of threads of, of, of argument, and then, you know, even, I mean, who knows what, like you then apply AI to that. I don't know. Like there's. Or it's just, that, just to keep track of the structure of an argument, right? Like if yeah. I say, look, I believe A because I think the conjunction of B and C is true. And I think C because D is true and D is true because either E or F is like by the time I've said that, you just like forgotten everything. Yeah. And then so you just get caught in these loops of just forgetting the other person's claims. Yeah. So just having some way to like visualize the structure of what you're talking about is, seems like a good start. Right. Exactly. Just, yeah, just being able to see it. And then, I mean, this in particular, like they, they represent it on a two-dimensional laptop screen, you know, like it's a, it's a hype, you know, multi-dimensional problem represented you know you've they found a way to represent it visually um so yeah th that's the kind of like direction i think it, i would like to see more thought in like these sort of like mm, tools for thought i guess is a nice category something like that um and just like yeah systems level stuff basically yeah nice this seems great um that was a great answer uh another question we ask 
everyone is if you could share three three like anything so books films um articles that you just think people listening should should take a look at yeah um well if if this you know particularly the stuff we talked about about like misalignment of of corporations and like sort of market structures and so on was interesting to people especially as it relates to ai um i did a like a, a sort of long I, I interviewed someone else uh, for 90 minutes um daniel schmachtenberger it's on my youtube channel um i certainly i think people in the ea community uh i would love their thoughts on that you know the, his 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 arguments um, because there's some arguments I've not heard discussed before within the community. And I think it, it's, um, I don't know. I think there's some, there's some real nuggets of wisdom there. Um, so I'd recommend that. And in general, like my Moloch videos, uh, if anyone hasn't seen them, although I imagine probably a lot of people have at this point. Well, I have written down here from ages ago when I made these notes, uh, the Dan, uh, Dan Hendricks AI paper. Oh, great. Yeah. That's super uh, relevant as well to what we It's really about. good. Really, really recommend that. Um, and then in terms of books, I mean, I want more books that inspire people. Um, and I think one of the best, uh, for like really capturing, you know, again, like kind of like a protopia, um, the best I've seen is the culture series by Ian Banks. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's just like, that's an, that's a sci-fi future I want to live in. It just sounds so great. There's so much, it's so win-win. It's so, so win-win-y. They're really wise. They like maximize choice for everybody. Um, but at the same time, they like know how to sort of slap down when people are getting a little too mollicky. Um, and it's just really fun, sexy sci-fi, uh, like particularly surface detail, although that comes with like pretty big uh, info hazard. Um, Interesting. What would be your culture great. series spaceship name? Oof. Ooh. Well, I, I don't know about the space. I mean, probably win-win. I, I, yeah. Oh yeah, of course. The win-win. Um, so <laughs> funny tidbit. I, the, the spaceship at the end of the, like, well, the spaceship that's like a core part of that book and particularly like goes into battle at the end. Um, I think is one of the best depictions of like, just an, un, like orders of magnitude, more powerful super intelligence than us. And <laughs> I also found it weirdly hot. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I think slightly sexually attracted to the spaceship in the book. Uh, That's great. Yeah. So maybe there, there, there you go. That's there's a selling point for anyone who so wants exclusive. to read it. It was just like, and like the ship's kind of an asshole as well, but it's a really good book. Mm. Okay, great. <laughs> what a recommendation! Um, all right, nice. And the last question is: you also have um, a really awesome podcast and a YouTube channel. Yeah, tell me about those. Where can people find them? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, ideally, if people can go and subscribe to me on YouTube, would love that. It's very hard to grow it for some reason. Um, but yeah, just launched a podcast uh, called Win Win. Um, and it's going to be sort of exploring the topic of competition and how it manifests in, in all sorts of different industries. Um, so certainly going to talk a lot about, you know, obviously, the like the big sort of existential type problems. Uh, that I think about all the time, but also, you know, more, more like down to earth stuff. Um, you know, they, like it's not all doom and gloom as well. Like I want it to be, you know, it, I want it to be as fun as possible and it's got some really fun guests lined up. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd love people to check that out. Um, yeah. Sweet. And yeah, I saw you put out an episode with Isabel, Bumuki, which I'm going to listen to. Just came out. 
highly recommend she's great yeah awesome Lipbury, thank you so much thank you that was Lipbury on poker moloch lessons from game theory and much more if you're looking for links or a transcript you can go to hearthisidea.com forward slash Bury. That is B-O-E-R-E-E. By the way, I updated the website, so it should be a bit nicer to interact with now. Um, but let us know if you have feedback on it. I'd like to hear that. Also, if you find this podcast valuable in some way, probably the most effective way to help is to write honest review wherever you're listening to this. We really appreciate that. And it does help, I think. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. We are just at hearthisidea, all one word. Okay, as always, a big thanks to our producer, Jesson, for editing these episodes, and thank you very much for listening.